Hi, this is Jody. Welcome to Mummy Brain Revisited. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Amanda Kentner about her recent research published in eNeuro. Stay tuned for a great episode. Soundstripe. happy to be able to, to talk to you again today and, and thank you for for inviting me to to come to your podcast and really super excited to, to share the data from our lab yeah I'm really excited I was really excited I'm excited about your data in general but this paper it caught my eye but first of all before we talk about this paper I wanted to know I mean how did you get interested in studying moms or I know moms and offspring um, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. And I, I think it, the way it worked out is um, I kind of fell into it. Um, during my PhD, I've been focusing on studies looking at sex differences in animal models of, of depression and how the immune system might be involved. Um, and I was using adult animals to do the work at, at that time. And during the course of my PhD, I ended up learning about an enzyme called cyclooxygenase 2 or COX2 and how that might be implicated in, in depression or, or reward processing. So at that time in Canada, um, which we established I'm from, um, they had some really interesting uh, studies in a particular lab there, um, working with baby rats that had been administered a bacterial mimetic um, called lipopolysaccharide or LPS. And what LPS does when it's administered, um, say through an injection, is it stimulates a short-lived immune response. And it essentially models the experience of, of having the flu. Um, so in this lab, what they would do is they would make these baby rats a little bit sick. And then when they were grown up, they had reduced levels of this COX-2 protein in, in their brain. And the lab had been looking at this in terms of uh, fever responses because COX-2 is responsible for inflammation and, and those types of processes. And essentially what happened was these rats had an attenuated or, or a reduced fever response, which paralleled the reduction of that COX-2 protein um, following their early life sickness. Now, coming from a psychology background, I was interested in whether this COX-2 protein in, in the brains of these animals led to changes in their reward processing. Um, and Jody, I was totally wrong. Um, I was wrong about the hypotheses and, and everything with this study, um, but essentially it was this like absolute detrimentally failed project that led me to first consider offspring or, or younger um, animals in my research. And as a part of this project, um, we evaluated maternal care behaviors because it was possible that the moms treated their babies differently um, based on whether or not the, the babies were sick or healthy. Um, now that I'm in my own lab, um, we primarily work with maternal immune activation or MIA animal models, um, where we administer that LPS, so that bacterial mimetic to pregnant um, rat dams or, or mothers instead of to the baby pups. And um, this is because there's good evidence that getting sick during pregnancy in humans will increase the risk for schizophrenia or autism in, in the offspring. And the translational element of this is that we're able to show as, as, a, as others in, in their labs that if a rat mom or a mouse mom is sick during pregnancy, then her offspring are more likely to have social and cognitive impairments. And those impairments are in line um, with some of the symptoms of schizophrenia and autism. And so what this does is it allows us to explore some of the mechanisms that might underlie these symptoms. Now, of course, it's important because we're challenging mom now with this LPS. 
And it's possible that this Mia experience has long-term effects on her too. So it, it's reasonable and I think scientifically important to look at her behavior as well as her maternal um, care quality to see if it impacts pups in, in their, their development. Yeah, okay. And I think this is great. This is what I like to talk about is how we need to focus on the parent as well. And I mean, in animal models, especially rodents, we're primarily looking at moms because very few rodents also have the, a partner or dad parenting. Um, but just to go back, because I mean, also when we talk about the increased risk, we're not talking about like 100% chance. We're probably talking about like maybe compared to I don't know, let's say 1% of the population, maybe it's a risk of 1.3%. I'm not sure what the exact numbers are, but is it something like this? If we're talking about the risk factor of a cold leading to um, mental health issues in offspring? Yeah, I think part of it is that we have to consider the severity of the sickness. I mean, you get sick, but you're not maybe that sick um, to the point where you need to be hospitalized, for example, as well as the timing of infection. We know that vaccinations are very important. Um, Andrea Edlow, at, um, uh, associated with Harvard, I believe she's at the Brigham. She's had a, a beautiful JAMA open paper come out looking at uh, vaccinations um, during pregnancy and looking at the antibody uh, titers with the COVID vaccine and the importance of being vaccinated during pregnancy. So I, I think there's a lot of well-established data that it's important to get vaccinated um, during pregnancy and during lactational periods. And um, that, that's important. Being sick is a different type of um, response. It's a little bit more pathological, if you will. But it, again, um, I, I think you have to really consider the severity of, of the sickness because being sick is a natural thing. We have to clear out those paths pathogens. The immune system is activated for a reason, and that's to get rid of, you know, things that shouldn't be there. And so I think we have to keep that in mind as, as well. And stress, I mean, being stressed about sick isn't a good thing because stress can also um, affect fetal development and things like that. So I think we just have to kind of balance things in a little, you know, in a, in a better way and just think about it in a healthy way. Yeah. And I also like, and also think about that most kids develop pretty okay and so exactly. we have to go in with this so even though we're talking about something in the research that's quite specific and interesting for us as scientists and you in particular with your research this is definitely we have to remember that the majority of um, kids develop perfectly quite great even if you've been sick in pregnancy so I just wanted to state that out there so so we're clear on that for everybody listening uh, but this is a, an interesting research area right because it's uh, important to understand developmental factors that can affect uh, wellness later in life and then what you've been doing also is, is looking at mom yeah. So now tell me about this recent study I have here. I, I love the title because it's, it's milking it for all it's worth. I mean, so tell me about this study. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so yeah, we, we thought this uh, title might be fitting because the study is focused on something called environmental enrichment. And uh, yeah, I guess the lab is really kind of interested in this primarily because you know, thankfully, most people seem to like enrichment in watching animals, especially baby animals, uh, play in and interact with their environment. And I found it to be a really fun and great way to engage undergraduate students in the lab. This is a primarily undergraduate teaching institution that I work at. So we have a lot of uh, young people in the lab. And I found it to be honestly a, a really great recruitment tool to bring students in 
to do research with us. So for those who are not familiar, um, in the animal laboratory, um, mice and rats are typically housed in these rectangular, rather boring boxes. And so this um, type of cage, it does allow full access to food and water um, because it tends to be in this little hopper at the top of the cage. Um, these animals usually have at least one other cage mate for social stimulation. And depending on the institution and the research study, there might be a hiding tube and some nesting materials in the cage. And this is alongside your regular cage bedding. Um, but that's usually about it. And, and this enrichment doesn't tend to change across the, the study. Um, but I wanna highlight importantly that these caging systems do adhere to appropriate federal guidelines and, and animal welfare um, regulations and recommendations. Now, and uh, environmental enrichment, however, this is an enhanced laboratory living condition and animals are provided with toys and climbing objects. They have increased social play uh, opportunities and interactions. Um, they usually have a larger physical space for exploration. Um, and importantly, these toys and the play stimuli, they're changed out frequently in order to guarantee novelty and, and changing in, in their environment. Now, I want to highlight this is not just cute and fuzzy entertainment, okay? So enrichment has been shown to promote neuronal activation and signaling and plasticity throughout the entire brain. And it's by way of um, integrating sensory pathway systems, such as the, you know, your cognitive, your somatosensory, and your, your motor systems together, that enrichment can promote therapeutic benefits. And um, we can see this in animal models of diseases, such as animal models of stroke or Huntington's disease, and even in this maternal immune activation or, or MIA model that we use in my own lab. And so that's another uh, thing that we use enrichment for. But in the present study, um, we're just looking at animals that are housed in environmental enrichment and we're comparing them to animals housed in standard laboratory conditions. And so what we do is we introduce um, virgin female animals to the enrichment housing and we breed them in these conditions. Uh, they then give birth and they raise their litters in these little mansions until weaning, at which point what happens is the offspring will remain in the enrichment until the end of the study. And this is known as lifelong or a lifelong enrichment model. Now, previously others, as well as ourselves, have shown differences in maternal care behaviors between animals housed in environmental enrichment and standard housing. Um, so for example, in our studies, including this one here, um, the enriched moms, they show a greater number of what's known as arched back nursing postures compared to the dams or, or the moms that are housed in standard laboratory cages. So this arched back nursing posture, it's usually considered a better quality posture than just crouching low or sitting on the pups or passively lying on, on the, the, the mom's side and letting the pups feed. Um, so what happens in, in this arched back nursing is it takes more energy um, because the mom is actively holding herself up and it's kind of like a U-shaped, upside down U-shaped curve. Um, and what happens is this allows her teats to be exposed so that her pups can more easily feed and have access, all of them in the litter. Um, and so what we find is the enriched moms, of course, show more of this arch back nursing, but the standard house moms seem to spend more time in the low crouch position sitting on the nest or passively lying on their side to, to feed their pups. And also what we see is the standard house moms tend to spend more time on the nest. 
Now, given the cage space, they can honestly, they can literally sit on their nest and feed their pups while they're eating and drinking without ever leaving the nest. And sometimes you look at these poor ladies and you're like, come on, mom, go take a break, take a shower or something, you know, because they're, they're always there. Okay. There's literally no place for them to escape to. Now, in contrast, though, the, the enriched dams, um, remember, they have a larger cage space and they take advantage of the space. What we see is that they'll leave the nest um, to eat and to play and to sleep. And then what they do is they'll come back to the nest and they seem to be more efficient moms because overall they're showing the same amount or number of licking and grooming and other types of parental um, care behaviors as, as compared to the, the standard dams. Um, other scientists, um, such as Lombardo Maffei and Nicoletta Berardi, um, their labs find that the enriched moms will even spend more time doing these behaviors and be even like more motherly. Um, and especially they see these, this increased behavior of the, the critical licking and grooming behaviors. And these are known to shape or to program the stress response systems of the offspring brain during this um, critical early development period. So in humans, you can probably equate this licking and grooming behavior to say snuggles and skin-to-skin -skin contact. But if, if enrichment is generally associated with, with better care, um, one question we had is why these enriched moms are spending less time on the nest. Um, to us, it intuitively starts to suggest that maybe the enriched dams are worse or even neglectful moms. And so there was a really cool um, PLOS One paper that came out by Ratusky and Weary um, pretty much about the same time as we released our preprint. And it was really cool to see how these papers kind of combined together. And what they did was they gave lactating rat moms access to a getaway loft, not a getaway car, so they could, you know, but a little loft. And what this was, was it was a ledge. Um, that was built into the home cage. So mom could hop up on the ledge and be able to get away from her pups to take a break. And so what they found was as the pups got older, which is also correspond to when they drink a little bit more, <laughs> um, the rat moms would spend an increased amount of time on, the on, on this loft. And moms that had the loft access, they also spent less time in the passive nursing, nursing posture where they were lying down um, compared to the moms who didn't have a loft, suggesting that the moms who couldn't get away might be like more tired because they're often like sleeping with their eyes closed when we see them in this passive nursing behavior. So again, um, this suggests that giving moms the opportunity to periodically get away from their litter might make them more efficient caretakers. And we have to think that in the wild, these rat moms are known to leave their, their nest, they'll travel to find food and defend their territory. Um, so it's natural to leave for, for short periods at least. And I think in the wild, the moms are known to leave the nest for about like 20 minutes or so at least at a time. And I don't know, Jody, what that is exactly in, in human time period but I'm going to think it's at least a couple of hours, which means it's probably super cool for us to, you know, take a night off and go out for dinner, or catch a movie and take care of ourselves or just have a quiet night. Um, uh, and I think that's okay. Um, another cool thing I want to point out about that Ratusky and Murray study is, uh, and also the work from our own, our own study here, is that 
um, there were body weight differences between the standard housed and the enriched offspring. And this suggests that there might be metabolic differences between the, these two housing conditions. And so this got us thinking that maybe the effects are being mediated through maternal milk quality. So maybe by leaving the nest, what's happening is the enriched mom might have time to go rest, recharge, restore her milk um, quantity levels. And um, what was interesting is during the study, and it was reported in the um, Protusky and Weary study, is something called pressing behavior. And we see this only in our, our standard house mom so far. And what it looks like is she's actively trying to hide her teats from her pops to get a break. We'll see that she's literally pressing her ventral belly and her teats against the side of the cage so the pops can't access. Um, and so we think it's her way of trying to take a break. Um, so I don't know about you, um, Jody, but I, I had to isolate with kids during the COVID shutdowns. And I, I'm sure many other listeners out there had to do the same. And so they can probably kind of relate to this in the standard house cage, not being able to escape from the pups. I remember hiding in a closet, eating jelly beans from a jar, trying to get away from my kids and have a break, but they were right outside the closet. They knew exactly where I was. And having that experience during the time when we were planning and doing this study, I really, it really resonated with me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I am the laboratory, the standard laboratory rat dam right now. There's nowhere for me to go. Um, and I can't escape and just having that, that feeling. And so these, this inability for the standard housed rat mom to escape, um, it's possible that this could result in overfeeding of her pups because they're constantly feeding from her. And we know from wonderful work from Dr. Sarah Spencer and others that overfeeding can program the neural stress responses of the offspring. Um, an alternative um, thought we had was that maybe there are, again, those metabolic differences um, between the, the milk qualities of the housing conditions that affect the neurodevelopmental outcomes. And we know that those two are different between the enriched and the standard house offspring. So in this study in particular, we wanted to replicate those previous findings showing the differences in the maternal um, behaviors, and we did that. Um, but we also wanted to evaluate the maternal milk quality as well as the offspring behavior. So as I mentioned before, what we did was we housed and bred sprague dolly rats in either those standard laboratory cages or in an enriched cage. And so one day after birth, um, we standardized our litters um, to the, the same number of pups in, in each litter because we know that the size of the, the litter can affect the amount of, of milk uh, quality, and that can vary um, based on the number of, of babies feeding. Um, we also cross-fostered the pups uh, across the housing conditions. And this meant that some of the standard house-born pups went to live with an enriched dam, and some of the enriched born pups went to live with a standard house mom. And so by doing this, this helps us determine whether it's the prenatal or the postnatal housing experience that's important to the offspring development. And so if it's postnatal, that's driving these effects, we can infer that maternal milk quality could be an important factor in the developmental trajectory of the offspring. So again, while the enriched mom spent less time on the nest compared to the standard house moms, the enrichment housing was associated with the greater, higher offspring body weights. 
And this was lost if the pup was cross fostered or adopted into standard housing, meaning that the mom that fed them was a standard housed rat, even though their original mom was an enriched mom. Um, our previous studies have also shown that enriched, um, the enriched offspring, they tend to be really popular and really social. They really like to seek out attention. And we showed this again in this study too. Um, they're super social. Um, but what was cool is this effect was also blocked or prevented in male offspring with that cross fostering. So together, this meant to us that there was something about the postnatal enrichment environment that was driving these effects. And again, this made us wonder if that milk quality was involved. So on postnatal day 10, um, which is when the milk is in what's known as a mature phase, we collected the maternal milk samples and we evaluated its quality. And we did in fact find differences in, uh, that, in between those, those housing conditions. So what we found was that the housed, uh, the standard housed and the enriched moms, they were not different in terms of their food consumptions or, or their body weights. But what we saw was that the milk from the enriched mothers had higher triglyceride levels, which is a higher source of energy and uh, a primary rather, a primary source of energy. And that the enriched milk um, we saw also had a greater microbiome diversity. And what we saw specifically was that it had a higher abundance of bacterial families that were related to body weight as well as energy metabolism. Um, for example, tenor cuties and peptococcasia. Um, which is shocking that I could even somewhat pronounce those amazing words, um, but those are some of the, the bacterial families that we saw specifically changed. And I really want to highlight that through an amazing collaboration with Dr. Jordan Morocco and Sunny Caradona, we were able to perform something called RNA sequencing. And this was able to show that these differences in the milk quality reflected comparable transcriptomic changes at the genome-wide level in, in this maternal milk. So I think these findings really um, highlight some potential deficiencies in the quality of this gold standard laboratory housing condition that we tend to use in our studies, and as well as its impact on the welfare and design of translationally relevant animal models in, in biomedical research. So I think if you're trying to study how the brain works, but we're not studying it in say like a more natural or complex social world, then we're not really getting the whole picture. Now, for sure, like it's expensive to create these enriched um, environments for lab animals, and we're never going to absolutely completely replicate the complex real world. I'm, I'm not saying that we should do that because it's not possible, but I think it's important and I would argue necessary that we think about these fundamentals in the particular animal models that we're using, and, and I think that would ultimately lead to some better science and, and translation. Um, moreover, uh, I think an important message for these from these data that are, are relevant here is that I, I think it's okay for parents to, you know, take time off for themselves and develop hobbies and, you know, spend time with each other and other friends and, you know, just do, you know, what, what they want to do. And uh, it might just make for better parents. And I won't go into the data here, but we do have some other published work in the lab showing that the enriched offspring turn out just fine. And that's even when, when mom takes these longer breaks from them. Yeah, okay, so this is great. I love this. I love actually, because there's two main themes I'm hearing. One 
how are we doing our research, right? So how are we doing this housing our animals? And if we want to do translational research, what does this mean? How they're, you know, their environment. And I think I was just at a workshop last week where we talked about incorporating sex differences, so male and female, and how important that is. But then housing environment is a big deal as well. Right. You so, were with Anna Werbel talking there? Yeah. Okay, yeah, he yeah, does housing stuff. Exactly. Yeah, he's a big inspiration for our work as well. So it all kind of circles together. It's a small world. <laughs> yeah, it is a small world. Uh, yeah, and it was it's great. Uh, yeah, because I learned a little bit about their housing, like these ideas around housing and how important they are. I mean, when we look at our animal models, and I think that this is something um, yeah, I'm interested myself because I'm also getting tired of the stress world. And I feel like we spend a lot of time being like, oh, moms, if you're stressed, that affects baby. And then everyone stresses out instead of being like, hey, moms, how about take a bit of a break? That's good for you and baby, right? Mm -hmm. So can we kind of talk about how to make moms feel great about what they're doing? And I think that this is one of the reasons I really loved this this research because we often aren't looking at enrichment or like making like understanding what's beneficial for mom as opposed to what's bad for mom and baby so I love this I think you hit on a few uh, a few points here um first is the standard housing is also affecting some type of a physiological response and so we're kind of you know looking at this that this is our standard vacuum caging system. And so some of the work by Dr. Hannah Werbel and others really talks a lot about reproducibility in our animal models and the importance of introducing um, heterogeneous complexity and thinking about how that can translate more to real world findings. And I think, you know, adding, and, and you know, there's a lot of um, pushback because enrichment is expensive expensive and it can be difficult to implement in the lab. And I understand that, but I think it's also expensive to develop an animal model and then try and understand how that can translate to the clinic. But then I can take that same animal model and just use some modest enrichment by changing up, like you said, some toys and some tubes and some space. And all of a sudden we see a, an attenuation of the phenotype, or in our case, we use this maternal immune activation model and we see social changes in our animals exposed to the maternal immune activation challenge in utero. And then we do this enrichment with them and that phenotype disappears. It seems to prevent that effect. I'm like, seriously, throwing in a couple of tubes and some toys that I can get at a pet store, you know, that's able to alleviate, you know, some of these, these effects. I'm like, I think we need to develop more robust models and maybe push it, you know, and I, I don't know that every animal model necessarily needs to be, um, enriched more that might not be necessary but I think as scientists we need to consider that that if you can wipe out your phenotype you know the behavior that you're seeing or the physiological change that you're seeing so simply um, that maybe that model isn't the most robust and translational for for what you want to use it for and that's going to depend on that's going to depend on the question.
Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. And that was something that came up with us last week at the workshop is to remember that also that we're modeling. So when we're doing biomedical research or this translational research, we're actually modeling something and we're missing a lot of the aspects of the human condition, for example. So just to remember that whatever you find isn't always or probably never going to be 100% translatable, of course, because of a number of different factors. So one being well, sex, but the other being housing, just for two of many. And I think that this is really important also as, as researchers in this animal world, that we also acknowledge that and are like, okay, this is pretty cool what I found, but we have to remember that these other things can be playing a role. But I mean, you've hit on something like fundamental as the housing condition. And I think that that really taking this into consideration, as especially when we're doing developmental type work, I think is probably pretty important so that we can better translate that to the human human condition. Yeah. Okay. So we got off the topic of my questions. Um, but I think you've covered some of the questions I have here. So I actually, yeah, I also had this question, which I think is important we talk about is what about those moms that don't lactate? Because you see this change in milk um, production, milk content with the enrichment. And of course, I mean, I'm guessing regardless of whether or not you're breast or chest feeding, having some time for yourself is probably pretty good because it will, you know, help to benefit the, the caregiving. But what are your thoughts around that? So, yeah, I, I think that's um, a really important point to think about um, people who aren't lactating and how environmental enrichment can be translationally relevant. And what I love about this field is that there is actually a lot of translational support for enrichment as a therapeutic intervention in humans. And this is based on a bunch of randomized controlled clinical uh, clinical trials. Now, Importantly, I really want to specify that I am not a healthcare professional. So any type of inter intervention that someone might consider using, it should be done in consultation with their primary care physician. Um, that said, um, what's really cool about this work is there's a lot of different types of sensory motor uh, stimulation protocols that enrichment has had success in with adults, um, say in stroke prevention clinics, as well as children who have um, cerebral palsy or autism. And uh, enrichment has also, you know, to the point of this, this paper, has been used with uh, lactating human mothers. Um, for example, both social support and music therapy um, are interventions that are reportedly associated with increased milk volume, um, milk energy, uh, energy quality, and in some uh, studies, uh, levels of immunoglobulin A or IgA. And this is an antibody found in milk that can help um, recognize and clear out germs that, that can make you sick. Now, respect, with respect to the cerebral palsy and autism studies um, that I've seen, the primary endpoint with those works is that they were focused on kids as opposed to the parents. But what's interesting is that the interventions are driven by the parents specifically, and so they administer these interventions. And I suspect that the success of these programs are at least partly due um, to improvements in terms of the um, in, in social interaction and attachment that occurs between uh, both the parents and their children, um, especially in terms of the social gains that are reported in, in these children. 
And I think it would be really nice and important for follow-up studies in this work to see if uh, measures of parental mood and confidence and other related measures are, are also improved. Um, and related to this, uh, you might be interested, there's this one study that I know of in Australia. It was planned to occur prior to COVID, so I'm not sure if it's started or if it's still in the planning phases, but it's called the ENACT trial, and Dr. Uh, Koa Will Whittingham is uh, running that. And the plan is to conduct a, a randomized clinical trial with infants uh, who are at high risk for autism. And they plan to support um, parent-child interactions by supporting parental uh, mental health. And the idea is that it's to be administered as an online course, and it will encourage parents to do some small homework assignments um, with their kids each day in order to uh, promote uh, something called responsive parenting. And that this is supposed to be especially helpful for children who are more difficult to, uh, to read in, in terms of what their, their needs might be. And so they plan specifically to begin the intervention prenatally. And honestly, I think this is something that's really critical for environmental enrichment interventions is that they start um, early and that the support continues for both parents and their children um, throughout life, um, which our own work with the animal shows is, is pretty important with that lifelong enrichment model. Now, another thing that we really need to consider, though, is what environmental enrichment is in humans as well as other animal species. Um, it's likely to be a really individualized thing. Um, for example, yoga is often identified as an, an enrichment intervention. Um, but for example, someone like me who doesn't like yoga particularly very much, um, it's probably not going to be very effective. And so I think the success of enrichment is really going to depend on the individual person in terms of what they think or perceive it is that they need or want. And it's also going to depend on what the end goal is in terms of why the enrichment is being used. Um, for example, if it's to improve mood or increase lactation quality or even to strengthen the parental infant bond. And we need to keep in mind that these might not be mutually exclusive. Um, so it's important um, this you know, this thinking because in our past enrichment studies and several of the human studies, um, for example, social support, it seems to be a critical component of enrichment when it's used with moms, um, both prenatally and after the, the child's born. But we need to think about what parts of the social um, support is more most beneficial. Um, so, for example, is it the instrumental support? So, for example, offering to babysit or, you know, bringing a meal over to a new family. Um, that is that what's really helpful and enriching there? Or is it the emotional support that's more important? For example, just having someone there to listen to you or send you a funny picture through like a text message or something. So, well, I would predict that it's going to be based on individual wants and needs, which what's nice is that research can give us um, general indications of what could be successful for most people. For example, there is one study done during the height of COVID, and what they showed was that increased social support from friends in the form of like text messaging and phone calls and video calls um, this was found to be more beneficial to pregnant women in terms of reducing their perceived stress and anxiety, which are known to affect fetal development, as we mentioned before. This was more beneficial coming from their friends than if they received um, social support from their family members or even their significant other.
So it was interesting, despite the prominent use in like social media in our lives, social media use, um, parenting forums, and well-being apps were found to be less useful to these women. So ultimately, for most women, it was just friends, you know, dropping them a line, letting them know that, hey, I'm thinking about you, you know, um, that seemed to be most, most helpful or enriching to them in, in this study, at least. Now, another consideration for translating these interventions to both, you know, lactating people and, you know, anyone else, um, and I alluded to this earlier, is to think about what happens when these interventions are completed for the study. So given um, data from Drs. Jim Herman and Brittany Smith, um, they look at environmental enrichment loss in rats. And, um, you know, they, they show that this can affect and develop, the, the animals will develop this kind of learned helplessness type of phenotype that can be associated with like depressive like behaviors. Um, and given this, I'm a little bit hesitant about designing interventions where supports would be removed from parents and children or other people at the end of the study. So ideally, we would be designing something that would create a sense of sustainability or to maintain a, a, a continual enrichment support system in, in the longer term. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point is it's not just about enrichment at one point in, in life. Essentially, it's about how having to build your enrichment or meet your needs throughout life so you can maintain your health and, and yeah. And I think this is also important to consider that it's very tailored to you. I mean, talking about this in the parenting space, what one parent wants and needs is can be quite different than the another one. And so I think tailoring these things or being aware that there's not one size fits all is really, really important. Yeah. Exactly. Ooh. Yeah. So, okay. So what's next for you in terms of research in this area? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I think we're going to be returning to focus more on our maternal immune activation or that MIA model for the next while. So my amazing graduate student, Holly DeRosa, who is really involved in this uh, study we've been talking about, um, she's been evaluating maternal behavior in mother rats exposed to that uh, bacterial mimetic, that LPS. Um, but they've been exposed to this during pregnancy. And what we plan to do is look at some epigenetic markers in both mom and her offspring. And so this is part of a collaboration with uh, a colleague, Dr. Richard Hunter at UMass Boston. Okay. And then, I mean, this is Mummy Brain Revisited, the podcast. So tell me about the brains. I mean, I, I know you didn't look specifically at them, but what are your thoughts in terms of neurobiological changes? Oh, yeah. So we definitely think that there's probably something going on, especially with this, um, well, with the enrichment for sure, and with the uh, maternal immune activation model that we use. Um, so we have another collaboration with a dear friend who I believe you know, Ann Conkle, Dr. Ann Conkle at the University of Ottawa. And Ann has shown some uh, long-term changes in the maternal brain following uh, that MIA exposure in, in our moms. And specifically, she was looking at estrogen receptor expression in the brain. And so this is really interesting and, and preliminary work. And because of this, what we're, we're now going to look specifically at those epigenetic markers across gestation and lactation following the MIA challenge, because they're kind of like more long-term kind of markers that we think or suspect that we might be able to, to measure um, across these important developmental periods in, in the mom's brain. And I think Holly is most specifically interested in looking at uh, H3K9 
hello, if I can say it correctly, H3K9 trimethylation uh, levels in the medial preoptic area and the hippocampus of these moms as a starting, uh, as a starting point. And then based those results um, will map out those changes uh, associated with maternal stress responses in the brain as well. Um, but again, that's going to depend on, on the findings and we're still going back and forth on, on the details for that project. Okay, cool. I'm happy to hear that there is going to be more mom brain research in future around these I mean, these models essentially. So that's pretty cool. So, I mean, my last question would be then, you know, when talking about parenting and the parental brain in general, what are some key questions you'd like to see answered? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so I remember in grad school, I had to write a paper on a topic that was not related to my general thesis work. And so I don't remember why, because it was a very long time ago. I don't want to say how long ago, but it was a long time ago. Um, I decided to write um, on uh, animal models of paternal behavior. And I remember um, it seems to be at that time that the topic was really overlooked. And uh, it seems like it's probably still that way today. Um, I'm really happy and really glad to see that there's more awareness on um, sex as a biological variable, um, you know, and this has really led to increased use of women and transgender people and also female animals in research. I mean, I, there's definitely a lot of work to do here, um, but it strikes me that again, maybe it's due to social norms, I, I don't know, but it seems that um, you know, the, the questions about the mechanisms underlying dads as parents um, seem to continue to be overlooked. And related, um, especially with the enrichment work, um, we know that the enrichment results in many epigenetic changes. And Dr. Tony Hannon has some really cool enrichment uh, data in rodent dads, other people do as well. And what they show is that there's transgenerational effects related to the offspring. So I think it would be really cool and interesting to see more research in this area in terms of both brain and sperm changes in dads and the downstream effects in, in the behavior of offspring in, in both humans and, and animals. I'm sure dads need support too, just like moms and babies and everyone across the lifespan. That yeah, definitely. Questions, comments, suggestions, get in touch at Mommy Brain Revisited on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. You can also contact me on my website at jodipaluski.com. That's J O D I P A W L U S K I.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. Both sides, both